It's April 4, 2022. This is Rook. is an acclaimed British-Iranian screenwriter who wrote the adapted screenplay for the riveting film Drive and was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Writing for The Wings of the Dove. Hossein Amini is prolific and productive with a seemingly endless string of hits in film and TV. He joins me for a feature chat later in the show. But first, it's a football frenzy as Iran, England, the USA, and Canada are all in the World Cup. What are some of us in the Persian diaspora to do when the teams that we love facing each other. The great Maz Jabrani joins us to give his advice, predilections and predictions for Qatar. This is Conversations from, to and about the Iranian diaspora. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. Hi there, welcome to episode 173 of Rook. Hope you're keeping well wherever you're tuning in from around the world. Hello to you from Toronto, Canada. Salam, Dustan Aziz. Durud Bashamah, the World Cup! Sound of two men yelling. It's 230 days away, but I'm already excited and nervous. It's, it's a. Uh, it's like awaiting a new Radiohead album or my mom's Khurashte Badem Jun. You can't ignore the anticipation. It's coming. It's coming. Uh, of course, there are complications with this World Cup, uh, the host country, the which teams do we support, uh, the cross-section of, uh, of allegiances. Maz Jabrani joining us in a few minutes to uh, give his thoughts. I, I've known him uh, I've known him for years. He... He used to play football, soccer, and I know his kids play soccer now, and uh, he's a big fan, and we've talked about uh, soccer over the years, so uh, it'll be fun to have him on. You remember, Shia, we went a few months <laughs> I ago. I took Moz to a, he was in town, <laughs> yeah. and I took him to a sports bar. Canada versus Ca- Costa Rica. Canada was playing. It was yeah. one of the qualifying, mm. and he was making fun of Canada the whole time, right? You know? <laughs> oh, what's Oh, does this team, what are these guys, uh, you know? Some valid and, you know, they it's was like a... Soccer, it's not hockey. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also, it was kind of funny because it was one of those games where it was snowing, and <laughs> oh, it just looked like yeah. the Canadian, the sad Canadian team in the snow. Oh, you know, but uh, but sure enough, I mean, we yeah. won, and uh, actually, Moz, uh, when we qualified, he texted me going, "Okay, you guys are it's a pretty good team." So I'm going to bring bring that up with him, his uh, razzing of Canada now that Canada qualified ahead of the USA in the World Cup. So we'll get to Moz, Hossein Amini, the Oscar-nominated screenwriter who wrote Wings of the Dove and the adapted screenplay for the Ryan Gosling film Drive. Uh, he'll join us from London. Um, his granddad. This uh-huh. is interesting. So I mean, we're going to talk about him, about writing and, and his yeah. film work. But uh, his lineage is quite remarkable. His granddad was Ali Amini. Who uh, yeah, do you know who that is, Reza? No, I have no idea. No, who's Ali? He was prime minister mm. under the Shah in oh, the nineteen sixties. Wow! Oh, yeah. the bald fella. Was he bald? 
No, that was someone else. No. no, there no, was no, a few bald fellas, <laughs> that's, that's including Moz. <laughs> you, uh, Will Smith, may slap you for oh saying boy. that. Oh, uh, <laughs> nicely done, Gomesh. Uh, bravo, uh, bravo. I don't know if he was. I don't know if he had. If he was follically <laughs> challenged or not. But uh, the grandfather uh, of Hossein Amini, wow, Ali Amini. That's uh, yeah, I mean it's part For of his, his. He part so he comes from, and I think Ali Amini to complicate things. I'll ask, I'll ask uh, Hossein about this. I think he has roots in the Qajar, Qajar, yeah, uh, lineage. So, so uh, Hossein Amini, not only an Oscar nominee, but a scion of both the Qajar and Pahlavi dynasties. What do you got, Reza? Well, I'm not a monarch, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> hello to you, Captain Reza. Hello, sir. Hello, sir, and hello, hello Groovy Shai. There is a uh, person missing. Uh, I want to get to But first of all, happy Sizda Bedar. Sizda oh. uh, Bedar. Yes. What, what is it? Dar is door. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, but I think it came from Bedar uh, Kardan, like... Um, um, uh, get rid of something. So Sizda is uh, nas is ominous. Yes. Is so you have to. to oh, Sizda is not the number. Sizda is the number. Is the number. Yeah, Why is that number. ominous? It's, it's, uh, they say it's like bad luck. Uh-huh. Kind of like I mean, it's kind of universal. Uh, actually, it is. To, You're yeah, right, right, right. Okay, okay, okay. Sizda yeah, that. So, so, uh, and I should explain to non-Iranians. So, so no ruse. Uh, happens and then for two weeks afterwards, you're kind of still celebrating yeah. Satatafi, the, the the coming of the spring equinox. Mm. It's kind of a, a two week New Year celebration, and then the it ends on something called Siz Dabidad, which is on the thirteenth day, get rid of the yeah. what yeah. the old sabze that has yes. gone bad. Well, here was my question. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I didn't. I had sabze this year. Yeah, uh-huh. you know, yeah. people can see it in the Noru's video, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. That we made. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I didn't throw out my sabze. You didn't. No, is that bad? Yes, yeah, bad <laughs> for all of us. Yeah. <laughs> bad. Oh, for all for of all us. Of us? Yeah, yeah. I condemn all of us. Yeah, if yeah, it's bad for then. you, it's bad for us. I mean, yeah, for sure. Well, like, I, I just felt like <laughs> it felt wrong to throw out these. The, what you know? Is it? I moved it. I did move it. First of all, you don't get married. That's the first. That's the thing. first oh, thing because yeah. you didn't tie it. You got to tie, tie it. What do you yeah, mean? you got to tie the sabze. That's tradition. And then like, you throw it in the, the water. You throw yes. it whatever you want. But as far as I know, I might be wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong, Shaya. And Sizabedar, single girls like in the family, they would go and tie up the uh, like they, they they tie the knot with the sabze mm-hmm. and with the superstition that they're gonna get married. What you, gonna bring up they tie life. a knot with the sabze. Like you tie, actually, like you take grass and you tie sabze, little knots yeah, with yeah, it. Yeah, uh, you tie a little knot with the sabze. Sabze is basically it's wheat grass. grass. It's grass. Yeah, yeah. Grass, yeah. So yeah, you tie uh, the wheat grass, and then that brings you good luck, and hopefully. Yeah, uh, but, and I was seeing these people, like you know, <laughs> friends of mine making videos of throwing out the sabze, uh, and I was looking at my sabze, going, "Geez, what am I? You know, I got to find a lake. I got to, you know, I'm uh, actually I'm close to the lake <laughs> in Toronto, yeah, but, close. but uh, so uh, hmm. actually, some people call it sabze bedar instead of sizda bedar. For real? Oh, yeah. sabze to the door. Yeah. Take the sabze. sabze yeah. yeah. Get rid of Boy, I guess I shouldn't have said anything, hey, about how. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. I gave it a haircut. <laughs> okay, that's good. I trimmed the hey, sabze and threw that out. Yeah. <laughs> you uh, threw part of it out. Jeez. What did so, you do with the goldfish? 
Like, like the goldfish died. Flushed down the toilet. Yeah. Yeah. Long Actually, time. the goldfish, they died like the two days after you guys came and right. terrorized them dancing <laughs> in my <laughs> kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> I think we moved those goldfish too many times. So, yeah, you know, yeah. they're, 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 they were gave them not long for this life. All right, let me explain uh, the absence of one of our team members here. As you can hear, all the male voices are our female voice, Keon. Yeah. Now, um, I told you guys this on in our morning meeting. Yeah. I wanted oh, to spring it on one. you because it's so rich. Can we get a drum roll on I, this? I don't know how. Something. If if I, you know, I know Keon's an honest person. Otherwise, I would, uh, I would question some of these. Uh, so, to to catch people up who are not uh, in, uh, you know, up to date on the regular drama of Keon's health and turning up to our. Uh, <laughs> and, and and by the way, if she really had health problems, we would we wouldn't joke yeah, about it. But it's course, key on, and course, you know she's she's robust and healthy and fine. And but but for some reason, gets herself mixed up in you know uh, getting dicey this, situations. Dicey situations. <laughs> so last <laughs> dicey situations. We'll so so, so last week, right. <laughs> as we know, she didn't turn up on the show. That's right. We called her at home because she she'd sent me a message saying I have a cold. But it's not, COVID, it's not COVID, you know, which she has said for yeah. two years. Despite I'm sure, and she said her test came back negative. I'm sure in neg- in, in yeah. November or December <laughs> she had COVID. I like I 100%. you. There's nothing. I'm I'm as sure as you know, <laughs> I, I, and I'm sure she was one of the people who gave it to me because I think I felt it the, when the molecules were coming from her into <laughs> that day she was coughing and sneezing and you know the two feet away from me and then somehow the next week I had COVID you yeah. know how does that happen I wasn't going anywhere so anyway Keon says I don't have COVID it's just a cold or something and then reveals it's like well how do you know you don't have COVID I got a test because I'm leaving leaving what are you doing she hadn't told us she was yep. going to Turks and Caicos right. she was going to, on a holiday yep while being sun sand beach deadly <laughs> ill like sick somehow gone on the so then uh, I got a text from this morning because Keon was supposed to return last night yes yeah. in time to be on the show today right I got a text this morning saying hey uh the cold that I had <laughs> was just a cold, and it and it was gone. But then yesterday, then when when I got back to the airport, I must have got COVID oh. because. Yeah. Uh, and then she got a picture right. of a COVID test. It's it's positive, so she has COVID now. Yeah. Now, here's my question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Weird to believe that this guy, and, you know, mm-hmm. love, peace, love, <laughs> respect for our dear Keon, right? Yeah. We're supposed to believe that the COVID she has now is yeah. not connected to the COVID not last week because that wasn't COVID. That was just a cold. <laughs> Secondly, somehow she contracted COVID last night, yeah. yesterday when she got uh, in the airport and tested right away today. and right yeah. away felt it. Oh, right away felt it. I and mean, right away tested positive. Usually they say it takes 48 hours. Well, that too. That's I mean, how would she have got the COVID in the airport yesterday? No, I think and she had COVID, went to Turks and Caicos, gave it to everyone, <laughs> came back very beautifully, got tested. She's like, oops, I ruined the country, an entire uh, country, I guess. Dear, dear Keon. Well, we hope that Keon gets uh, <laughs> better, a full recovery and better. And our Keon June, uh, we're thinking of you. We uh, want you to... Feel better and, yeah. and come back and join us. And uh, get get the third and the fourth dose, <laughs> Keon. For God's sake, they're not. Did she not get the booster? I think I she got the know. booster. I don't know. Did she? She's so anti-vax. She is kind that. of yeah, yeah so hesitant about that. Yeah. Huh? But that's a matter. No. Nah, people nah, are still getting COVID. Yeah. I didn't get my booster. 
You didn't even get Shia, COVID. and you're Good the only you. one who hasn't gotten COVID. He's yeah. never got. Knock on wood, man. Yeah, knock Duncan, wood. why didn't you get your booster? I went actually once, and uh, it was a lineup, so I came wow. back home. So I, yeah, but uh, you but can awesome. sit and get it. Any, you can go to the okay, drug yeah. store and get it. So tonight I will go. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, not tonight, but but what what what's that? She can survive, right? <laughs> Gonna yeah, survive, yes. bro. Yes, she will survive. She's as a as a love shot, a thirty-three-year-old yes, woman in good She's health. She's gonna be yeah. fine. <laughs> He's worried about. Gina. We're coming to you on RookMedia.com. Instead, that you can link to all of our platforms. We're on a, an ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. We are on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Instagram, Castbox. If you'd like to see some visuals with Rook, you can switch over to YouTube and. If you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in English and in Farsi, check us out on Telegram. You can see our Noruz video where we're speaking in Persian uh, on any of our platforms, actually on our social media platforms now on Instagram and YouTube. Um, and if you would like to support this program and help us out, go to our uh, website, rookmedia.com, and press the Support Us button, which will lead you to the Patrons page. Uh, and uh, this is uh, how we how we continue the show, is to get uh, crowdsourcing and crowdfunding through our patrons. Um, $5 or $10 a month to become a Rook patron. It means the world to us, rookmedia.com. Press the Support Us button. It's very easy to sign up there. All right, we'll get to Hossein Amini in just a little while. But first, let's talk some World Cup. Hit it, Shia. A mashup of some of the national noises. So you may know that last Friday, in case you missed it, the eyes of the globe were on the tiny Arab nation of Qatar as football fans around the world waited and watched to see the final draw of games and teams for World Cup 2022, which will be held in Qatar in November and December of this year. This is the summit of all things soccer. And a lot of us are excited about it, even if we don't like the exploitation of migrant workers or human rights issues we've learned about in the host country. But there is more. What do you do when your dreams come true and the nations that you love, adore and pledge allegiance to all make the World Cup and then start playing each other? And so I learned that one of the first games of the tourney will be between the country of my birthright citizenship, England, and the country of my 100 percent ancestry, Iran. What is a lad to do? Well, to help us navigate these football festivities, families, frustrations, and focuses, I'm joined by an avid, lifelong football fan and player who also happens to be good at some other things, too. He's one of the best-known and beloved performers of Iranian background in the world. He's a comedian, an actor, a writer, a podcaster, a social media sensation, and he is back on tour this spring, including dates in Ottawa on May 20th at the Algonquin Commons Theatre and Toronto on May 21st at the John Bassett Theatre. But first, right now, Maz Jabrani joins me from Los Angeles, California. Hello, sir. Hi, Gian. How are you? 
I am I am excited to speak to you. Actually, you know, the last time you were on the show, it was in the midst of COVID, and you couldn't really perform live anywhere. I, I know you've been doing shows for a few months now, but how does it feel to be back on tour? Oh, it feels great to actually be able to do uh, shows with live audience um, to to laugh at your jokes because you know during the the lockdown we would do all kinds of shows. We did shows on Zoom, which were actually pretty fun because um, you could see everybody at the same time. And if you started talking to somebody who's in the Zoom room, everyone saw who you were talking to. So it was pretty fun, but it just was not a live performance. And then the other one we would do, we would do drive-in shows where you stand on a stage and they project your image on a screen and everyone would be in their cars watching and listening on a radio station they'd given them to listen to. But the problem for us as comics was we didn't know if they're laughing in the car for sleeping. Right, right, right. Maybe they're making love. I don't know. Right. You know, sometimes the cars were moving a little too much. Right. It's, it sounds like a good idea in theory, but kind of isolating as a performer. Yeah, yeah. So it's nice to be back, and I think audiences are happy too. We've really seen um, some good energy from the audiences. I think people are just they, – they're everyone's pretty exhausted from being – um in isolated for that long so it's been nice and we actually i've, I've actually done a couple of shows in canada as well I, I was in vancouver i was in calgary i was in surrey and, and people came out and seemed to enjoy it so it's nice to be back my friend it's great man there's so many ways in which the the return to normalcy if you will expresses itself and one of them is seeing oh Moz is coming back to town that's great you know that it feels really good so i'm going to ask you more about the upcoming tour dates but let's get to the important matter at hand and that is world cup football i've known you for years and in in the entire time i've known you i've known that soccer football is a big part of your life so just as a to give us context what has the world cup meant to you over the years as a longtime football fan well, it's just such an amazing month of amazing soccer or football, as you would say, and um, it's always it's always fun to watch, get with friends. Usually, you find friends from the different backgrounds that are uh, represented, and you get together and you watch the games. There's always some great games against you know teams that are that are big teams that are playing, and then and then usually you know Iran in the past uh, few World Cups has always had a team show up and they've actually had some pretty good teams. Um, it's just never, the team from Iran, Team Meli, has never gone past that first round. Right. So as you know, it, it, it's it's a sport, but for some countries it's also this, um, it, it's got it's got deeper value. Meaning, for example, if Iran or, you know, there's been times when Iran has even, even when they qualified, the country has celebrated so much because let's let's face it, the country's had uh, 30, 40 years of being seen negatively in the eyes of the world, and then also the people of Iran have been in a position of being uh, oppressed by the government many in many ways. And so, when their team wins, it's something that is a sense of pride. It's something that gets people excited, and it gives people hope. And they go out and they celebrate. I mean, we've seen it before in the yeah, past. That yeah, they they yeah. go in the streets and they celebrate. And it's not just Iran. You know, you go to places 
you know, when Italy wins or when any of these these countries win, everyone goes out and they just brother. I think, uh, Canada all of a sudden has soccer fever. I mean, this is yeah <laughs> the one thing yeah. that this country, despite being a mosaic of immigrants, has lacked uh, since I you know my, my my lifetime has been you know the kind of soccer fever for our own national team in Canada that uh, that um, we have for our you know our the, the national teams of our birth or our our ancestry. So it's interesting to see that happen here you know i was thinking about this world cup and i was thinking um watching the draw last week i'm going to ask you obviously about it in specific games but i was thinking the the sheen having come off the olympics in in various ways um whether it's sort of doping scandals or some countries not showing up or some countries not being represented or uh, the whole thing i I mean not to take anything away from some of the great olympic uh, events or the olympians but it really feels like the World Cup is the last really global sporting event or or maybe the most global sporting event. Does it feel that way to you? Yeah, I think you could say that definitely because, as you said, the Olympics are no longer – I don't even know who watched the Olympics and, and they have all of the different uh, controversies that came about. And, and I think the other thing about World Cup is that it's one sport – and it's there's also the stakes are so high, every loss counts, every um, every goal counts, and you really can get with a group of friends. Everyone has everyone hosts parties to watch. I've never heard anybody host a Olympic watching party, um, but but if your team is playing in the World Cup or if there's a big game playing, people have people over, they get together, and it's also a game where there's no timeouts. It keeps moving. You know, you you tell people just be quiet, shut up, I'm watching. You know, there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on. Um, and so I agree with you. I think the World Cup is the last sport that's on the world scale that, that really gets people's attention. And, um, and again, it's exciting. I mean, Wait. no matter what you say and do, it, it, there's always going to be a handful of exciting games to watch that, that make fans out of people who might not have been fans before. How avid are you? Are you one of those people who books the month – off of work or, or, you know, makes a plan to not have gigs on the nights of uh, big games or something? Well, I'm a comedian. So, I mean, I, a lot of times, depending on the timing of the game and where they are, right? I mean, it's, I guess it'll depend in Qatar. They'll be 12 hours ahead of us. I, I can try to organize my own schedule and, and I will try to organize my own schedule, definitely around the bigger games. Um, but yeah, I when when it's happening, it's uh, I, I try to watch as many games as possible. There's been times it's actually kind of funny because I, I forget if it was the last World Cup or which one it was, but it was basically a lot of the games were falling into sometime during the work day, and a lot of my friends who work were at work, and I am a comic, so I, again I can make my own schedule. And during the day, I can <laughs> right. just say you know no meetings and so i'd be sitting around during the day watching the games and going like oh these bums they got <laughs> they can't watch it so yeah i try to watch as much as i can and there's also some exciting teams besides our teams that we root for there's also you know holland and brazil and italy and france and and not uh, italy and portugal oh yeah italy didn't get in that's right, right. yeah oh my god yeah oh my I wow. mean, some of us wow. delight in that. I know that's crushing yeah. for others. Yeah. But, but Who they uh, lose to Madagascar or something? Who they lose to? Montenegro? They, <laughs> North Macedonia. Oh, my God. I knew yeah. there was an M in there. <laughs> <laughs> Did you? Do, do, so don't give me any specifics yet of the games and who you're supporting, but how, how were you feeling in general about the draw last week? 
Um, I was excited by it. I was excited because I remember in, I think it was 98 or something, when um, Iran ended up in the same uh, draw as the U.S. Yep. And for us, having grown up in the U.S., coming to America during the revolution or a little bit before the revolution and then being here during the hostage crisis and all of the negativity that went with being Iranian in America, it was our chance to play uh, the U.S. Um, in a in this 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 world stage and i remember watching the game i think it was like three in the morning over here i think it was in france is where they were playing it and no it wasn't three in the morning i i i was actually in arkansas on tour with my band uh you mean when uh, iran and, and usa played in 1998 yeah. right no when it, was it? it was during was the it? day it was during the day it was like uh it was okay. yeah yeah Whatever it was, I just remember being at a big venue with a bunch of other Iranians because I live in LA, so there's a lot of Iranians and some some place that you know opened it up, and so we were all there. And I was there with my grandfather, and I remember when Iran, I think, scored their winning goal. It, the place just erupted, and but more importantly, I remember before the game started, the Iranian team brought flowers for the American players. And whereas teams always stand on their own and take pictures, the Iranians got in with the Americans and yeah, took a picture together. Yeah. And it was really, you know, kind of diplomacy at its best. And I, and I, and I was just so – it was such a warm thing to see. Um, and so, yeah, I think it allows the world to see these athletes play together and respect each other and not be enemies of one another the way their governments went. I remember I was uh, – I think I've told this story before, but I was I – was, it was in Fort Smith, Arkansas – and uh, we had just played a, a gig the, the night before or something, and and I was so excited when Iran won that I wanted to run out in the streets. I was in a hotel uh, with an Iranian flag, and I remember my bandmates going, eh, "Maybe not, uh, yeah, maybe not place. in Arkansas, you know." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> take it easy. Take it yeah, easy. you're not exactly in LA here, you know. That's funny. Um, by the way, what what kind of an ad is this for Qatar? Right, like I watching the draw, I was like, "Oh, right, this is going to be." really good for Qatar and uh, or Qatar or however we're supposed to say uh, Qatar yeah. you know there's lots of different ways it's said but I remember doing a story on this uh, Maz like literally 10 years ago on the the dodgy human rights issues with Qatar and the plight of migrant workers who have given their lives and worked in dangerous conditions to create this World Cup what's your take on how we deal with the politics of supporting a World Cup under those kind of circumstances you know, it's really a tough thing because, as you said, uh, it, there's they've done great things, and obviously, there's also all of this stuff where the workers have suffered at the hands of uh, trying to build these stadiums and all the other stuff. And so, I mean, if you if you look into it, the first thing is to say most countries have you know some sort of. Uh, negative thing that you could look i mean you know the united states yep. is the biggest importer of weapons to the world and probably is uh behind uh most wars in terms of their providing of weapons i mean there's a lot of stuff that you can look at um that that we could always criticize the one thing i've been to qatar before and i will say a, a, as a performer when i go there it is a very diverse place I love going places where we have diversity and I love also going places where people come out and they're not used to getting the entertainment that we get in the West all the time and then they're getting it. And so similarly with soccer, I think that it brings people from different backgrounds together. There are people from, you know, all backgrounds that will be there celebrating. And if it also shines a light on some of the um, inequalities, then that's a good thing, I think, because I think that people will be awakened to that and hopefully – 
you really hope that that leads to some sort of action internally. And I th- and I know that most of these countries have tried, given given their record at the beginning of of, of the the, um, the the migrant abuse, let's say, or the or the or the or the situation for the migrant workers, I think they've tried to improve it because they're aware of it too, because they know that there's a magnifying glass on them. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do hope that, that it helps the situation, helps improve the situation. And I will say being in Qatar before, I would say that that's probably, you know, in, in some of the countries in the Gulf, it's probably one of the more, um, I don't know. I, I don't know if the word is open or, or just, it just seemed to be again, going around Qatar, they seem to be a little more, um, uh, advanced in that sense, but but again, I, you're right. It's a it's a it, it causes this this dichotomous feeling inside, right? Yeah, little, yeah, yeah. But, but but I agree that it's uh, you know it's that I mean the, the the Olympics being held in China. I mean, what do you you know what are you supposed to do? At what point do you do you not punish the athletes by you know boycotting or something like that? So it's it's a very yeah. uh, it's a tough one. I the, just anecdotally on the Qatar thing. Keon uh, on our team here last week was on the air was saying she she went to buy tickets because she really wants to go to the World Cup which I, I would love to as well and, and she said they make you buy like she she had bought three games but they were three like over a course of three weeks and she said what am I going to do in Qatar for three isn't it like this, this tiny place what am I going to do for three <laughs> weeks and I and I was like well there's probably you know it's World Cup time right there'd be a lot go, lots going on but but having been there would you how would you answer that question about it? I mean it would would you spend three weeks in Qatar what I would do is I would say uh, that you can definitely there's there's good things to see there's a lot to see in Qatar but there's also close to other countries so you can take uh you know a few days that you have off and go to Oman which is a great Oman's a great place that has that's basically it's like a more more by the water more resorty um I, I really enjoyed there you can go to Dubai Dubai obviously is has a lot going on that you can go see um there's again there's countries nearby but when I first started touring in the region I would say you can go to Beirut, you can go to Amman, you can go to Cairo. I don't know what the situation is right now in those countries, given post-COVID and and all the economic problems mm. that there that have arisen. But there are, you know, if I were if I had three weeks in the region, I would take a few short trips. Everything's a couple hours away, and you could really see other places. and um, And that's what I would recommend. Yeah, for sure. Let's get to the games, the action. I, I, I want to get to Iran and USA, but actually, before I, I talk about Iran and USA, I want to talk to you about Canada because because um, <laughs> you were here in Toronto in the fall, and uh, we went out to a, a pub, a sports bar, uh, because Canada was playing a qualifying game, which, by the way, Canada won and, and has won a, a number of games, as you know, quite spectacularly. But at that point... You know, most of the night was you ribbing me about, you know, the, 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 the Canadians even know where the ball is. How are you? Know, how are they gonna, <laughs> you know, gonna, and and uh, you texted me, I think, when we qualified after beating or, you know, after Mexico or something. And you you said you're a believer now. You've watched the Canadian team now, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that they, you know, it's it's nice to see, as you said, I Canada reminds me a little bit of US, Team USA in that. I think there's great athletes, and we see that these countries are putting a little more emphasis in the soccer because obviously in Canada, hockey is the sport over here, football um, and basketball. And so soccer, I think, 
I'm seeing it. I'm seeing our own, my own kids play. There's obviously so many kids now playing, and we see them developing. There's a lot of kids that have, uh, you know, immigrant parents. They come from these other countries where soccer was huge, and then they're making their way onto these teams. And so it was exciting to see. And I and I just root for all of these teams to start doing. Uh, better and better in the cup because obviously they get out there and then they they go up against one of these Brazil Argentina th- these other these other teams yeah. that have been around for a while and you think oh no we're doomed yeah. but it, we I would love to see Canada go to the next I round mean for it, sure. it, it, Canada's group is it's it's doable it's I mean it's Belgium which is going to be you know really tough and Morocco is is I, I guess. A really, really strong team. I think it's the second strongest team in 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 Africa, and then Croatia. So, so it's not easy, but it's not. You know, there's no Brazil, there's no Argentina, and honestly, I mean, Canada was only in the World Cup once before. It was 1986. I I remember being a kid watching. It. We we didn't win any games. We didn't score any goals. So so just just winning one game would be yeah. huge for Canada yeah. on the second time ever uh, in the World Cup. Okay, so uh, November 29th, Iran versus USA. What is an American boy who is a famous Iranian comedian to do when uh, Iran meets USA on November 29th? Well, you know, first of all, I think any result, I'll be happy because, again, both of these teams are underdog teams, and I always root for underdogs. So either team, I'm going to be happy if they are able to advance to the next level. However, I will say in the world of underdogs, Iran is more of an underdog, not the team, but the country. Iran has had such bad, um, let's say, such a bad you know, 40 years or whatever it is that I really always root for Team Iran first, um, Team Meli, because, again, I feel like the athletes could use it, the country could use it. You know, America still, regardless of all of its troubles, is still one of the top countries in the world when it comes to many, many things. Americans are doing fine. The athletes, I'm sure, are doing fine. So I usually get into my, uh, I, I guess I, I would say I'm a sympathy rooter. I'm rooting for this team. They, they just, they need something. Yeah. You know, the Iranians need something to look forward to. So yeah, I would definitely root for for that. And And most importantly, though, I do root for, a game that shows the world that these two countries really like the players don't hate each other, that the people don't hate each other. I, I really want a game that's respectful and exciting. The, I mean, you know, something in the in the line of what happened the previous time would be a great game. You know, uh, I have the same issue. Uh, one week before that, November twenty first. I mean, there's no question for me with Iran USA. I'm going to be Iran, you know. But November 21st, which is the first day of games, it's England versus Iran. As I mentioned in the intro, I'm, I'm you know, what, what am I supposed to do? I posted a video about that on on Instagram, uh, and I, and in which I say, I guess I would root for the underdog, like you. My reflex is to go for the underdog team, and because I have a sense that England will probably move to the next round, or should, you know, the three lines are a really strong team this time, uh, even though we always choke by the finals. Or something you know i'm not in my lifetime yeah. no 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 trophies yeah. for england but uh but you know so i would go with iran the underdog and when i posted that i had a bunch of iranians going 
We are not the underdog. We're number one. What do you? Like, it's yeah. like yeah, the Iranian thing yeah. where it's yeah. like, yeah, it's no, crazy. I it's don't think we're. Know. I don't think we're actually the. You know, against England, I think we really are the underdog. You know, I'm not sure. You got to be careful how you word anything on social media nowadays because everyone's got their own perspective and they'll come at you like that and it's so stupid. But the truth is, if you talk to odds makers, they would tell you that England is favored and. Iran is the underdog. I told you the way to go because Iran. I mean, I'm sorry. England has been the colonizer all along. So you gotta you gotta root for the colonized. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You, you texted me. Do you go for the colonizer or the colonized? And yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you know, England is so bad backed though when it comes to like our you know World Cup record in, in recent years that I, I I feel like it's a perennial underdog as well, despite how great the players are. What do you what do you think happens between you, you said what you would want to happen. What do you think happens between Iran and USA or Iran and England, really? Gosh, you know, I haven't followed it close enough to know what who, who's who got the stacked team, but I do know that Iran's got a really good team. As you just said, I know, you know, England has a good team. I know that uh, Team USA has been a little erratic in their performances. I honestly feel Iran has a chance. I mean, they've, they, they, last time they had a chance, last time they got really close, um, and uh, and they, they they were playing Portugal, and they really played a great game, and there was moments where we thought, oh, my God, it's going to tie, it's going to win. So I don't know. Any, that's the beauty. Anything can happen. Who yeah. shows up? Yeah. Who shows up at what level of intensity? So I'm really excited. Like I really start diving into it a little bit more as we get closer to go, okay, who's playing? Who's injured? Oh, my God, that's our guy. You know, And, um, yeah, it's going to be exciting, man. And, 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 by the way, Team USA has some – great uh, uh players like Pulisic and some of these other guys that are playing on the world level and i'm and i'm excited to watch yeah them although play. TMU, team great. usa has been kind of dysfunctional and re- like yeah I, that's what i'm saying erratic yeah yeah very erratic yeah, yeah. i, I would yeah, i would yeah. almost feel like iran isn't the underdog as you say it's the underdog country for sure but uh yeah. in in that game i'm kind of thinking i actually think iran might have a chance you know to move to the yeah. second round I, I think americans think that it's going to be an easy ride and and certainly the the english press was having a laugh about oh you know we're we're facing Iran and and the USA. We're basically into the second round, but I, you know Iran might surprise people. I, I think Iran has always had good teams, and even in the region, they always win like the Asia Cup and this and that. So it's all, it's, it's never. I don't think, as you said, Iran isn't some you know random soccer team that showed up. They've been in the World Cup several times. They have experience, and um, and a lot of their players are playing um, you know in d- different European leagues and stuff. So I think they I think they have a chance. Do you? I, I'd be remiss if I don't mention that because I have some friends who are having misgivings or, or having trouble supporting Iran. They're saying they're not going to do so until women are let into the stadiums uh, in Iran. Um, where, where, how do you feel about that? That's a difficult well, again, one. Again, yeah. Listen, it's simple for me. The government is crap, and they should. That's the stupidest thing you could ever imagine. The fact that they don't let women in the stadium is stupid. Um, and I will voice that in support of women all day long. Um, that said, I still I don't think the players the players aren't the government. The players are playing in Qatar, where women will be allowed in the stadiums. Um, but yeah, let's shine a light on the Iranian government and see if we can yeah. push them to. That's that's just such a stupid and easy to change law. Like just change that law. It's a, and and, it, and by the way, so even backwards. but even when that law is changed, 
they're still going to be executing people for being gay or something. I mean, there's always going to yeah, be. Yeah, no, listen. It's yeah. A, so where, where do we draw the line, right? I think I, for a, me, yeah. I'm, I'm in the camp of let's support the team, the players, and the spirit of that comes from that and criticize yeah. the, the government at the same time. There's a long way to go, and I hope that I hope that the, that there will be freedoms in Iran um, soon. Uh, but again, as you said, I you know we can't just by not watching the games. I don't know what that does. But if we voice it, and we and by the way, the other the other problem is that Iran is such a pariah when it comes to Western relations. They don't care what the West says. But if we get to a point where we can actually have some influence with some of the, you know, maybe maybe economically or something, I'm not sure what that would take. Uh, or even from within, I, I would support it all day long. So hopefully some of these laws change sooner than later. I always say that, you know, in the last 43 years or whatever it, it is, uh, the one of the only times you get to see, I mean, other than sort of videos that emerge of Noruz or something like that, the only time you see Iranians with smiles on their faces, you know, jumping and dancing in the streets and, and celebrating is World Cup time. And, you know, that that, that feels valuable, you know, it, 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 the, pride, yeah. the pride that comes from, from these games and these players. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm telling you, that's similar to what I was saying about about the, you know, when, when you go to some of these countries and there's every, all these countries have some issues but with the people appreciate seeing live events, the people appreciate you going there, the people appreciate these sports activities. So it's and it's not just the wealthy; it's also the people who are not as wealthy. Again, it, it gives I, I think a lot of them uh, a certain level of um, emotional release and and some some pride and joy. So if if you, if the U.S. makes it to the second round and somehow meets Canada, you're going to support Canada as the underdog, right? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> in all honesty, in all honesty, that it's so funny because I am, I am of the mind. It, it, this is the truth. I really, I'm not one of these crazy. You know, you've seen people at games when their team loses, they're crying. I'm not that guy. I'm the guy who would sit there and go, "Oh wow, well I'm happy for the other team." You know, I really am. Like, so I would, I would, I'd be happy for Canada if Canada won. I'd be rooting for Team USA. But if Canada won, again, I would say, "Oh, that's great." You know, this is. Yeah. Because there's always a Cinderella story. There's always some team that nobody had thought about, and all of a sudden they're getting into the next round of the yeah. next round. So, would be great. We'd Although I that. think it was uh, that four years ago that I think it was the Argentina game that was really heartbreaking when Iran didn't, you know, because Iran played so well, and and you just kind of like, oh, we that were was so eight close. Years ago. Was that, that was eight years ago? Okay, ago where Messi hit the goal. Yes, in the yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, oh, there you it. have it. So um, it's great talking to you, man. Tell, tell me briefly about these tour dates coming up. By the way, I see you have. I mentioned the the Toronto and Ottawa, but you have an Axis of Evil tour reunion in in Huntington Beach, California, on May thirteenth. Yeah, we decided to try and do a show out here in LA just to see what what happens with the Axis Axis of Evil guys. As you know, I've been touring solo for the past whatever ten plus years, and I continue to the current tours the current. The current tour is called the Things Are Looking Bright Tour, and um, that's the one I'll be coming to uh, Ottawa, Toronto with, maybe Montreal. We might add Montreal. Nice. Um, and then, again, in May, I'll be in California doing that Access of Evil show just to see how it goes. Um, and uh, and the tours continue. In the fall, I'll be in Europe. I'll be going out to Europe and to all those countries that will have some, some of their 
teams represented in the World Cup, I'll be out there. I'll be in Germany. I'll be in uh, uh, in Sweden and Norway and uh, Denmark and England. I'll be in England. I'll be doing London shows in London. So I'm hitting them all. Paris. I'm doing Paris. Uh, you They're know, listening. I'm back. They're, they're, yeah, yeah. It's, it's great. People go. MazGibrani.com is where you can see all the tour dates and the tickets. May 20th in Ottawa. May 21st. By the way, the, the May twenty first date in you've got two shows in Toronto, and it's you and uh, Tehran and Nima Nazari. That's a good, Nima is on this as well. It's a great lineup. I mean, besides you, yeah, it's, yeah, uh, that's he, he, fantastic. Yeah, the promoter Mehran, who you've met before, does a good job of putting a show together. He's got some musical acts, and we tell jokes, and you know, we're doing two shows, and each show goes like eight hours. It's a lot of performers. <laughs> I'm, I'm being, I'm, I'm being. I'm exaggerating <laughs> right, here, but right. the, the shows go along. We, we have a good time, and so I think people will, will have fun. So it's all fun, man, and I'm just fingers crossed that these variants that are coming and going. Don't even say it. Just keep it keep it wherever. Yeah. Just stay. Don't come, please. I don't want a, f- that. a final question, uh, yeah. Maz. Mazi Arjun, uh, you're going to yes. uh, – I mean, I, I, I hate myself for asking this question. But, yes. it, but it feels obligatory, only a week yes. uh, removed from the Oscars. Oh, God. You are a comedian. What did you, what was your take on the, the slap? We were all shocked. I mean, what the hell happened? I, I, Will Smith lost it. I, I'm such a, you know, I was a fan of his, and I really lost a lot of respect for him. Um, I, I feel for Chris Rock. I, the, the job of a comedian is to jab people and have fun with them. And so... By the way, I, I, I say this. I go, look, Will Smith has been in the business for like 40 years. It's not like he was some new guy who just showed up at the Oscars, right. come off the streets who couldn't control himself. You've been in the business 40 years. You know the world is watching. Have a seat. And if you really want to take it up with, with Chris Rock, take it up with him later at, at the party or yell something from your seat. We have so many different ways that he could have dealt with it. And it's so sad the way he dealt with it because it really was – there's just no winners there. And then everyone's saying, well, she had alopecia. Well, Chris Rock didn't. First of all, he. Pro- I'm guessing he didn't know that she had mm. a condition, a hair condition. And secondly, um, it's it's just there, that's still not a re- – even, even if you piss – even if you went up there and said something super wrong about it, well, then, you know, you should let public – you know, the uh, court of public opinion – go after chris rock and and you you know you go after him with words as opposed to getting up and slapping him that's just totally i mean part of the reason i ask you it's it's so overdone that i you know i i I sort of skate away from it on this show you know you know everybody's talked about it to death but but it is interesting to me asking you as a comedian as a person who stands up there because i heard another comedian you you clearly would have had an empathy for chris rock in that moment and I heard another comedian say, you know, there's a hundred times a night, no matter where you're doing a gig, where somebody could come up and slap you, you know, and that, that, and you just, that precedent, you never want to set that precedent. You never want that to be a, a, a reaction to what is the expected. I mean, comedy is, is, is poking and prodding and, and, uh, and so, um, did you feel that way? Did you sort of think, geez, like, you know, what kind of precedent does this set? A little bit. I mean, there's always going to be some copycat uh, per- person who wants to do something like that. But I mean, I don't I don't necessarily think that that's going to that that was the the move that was going to make give people the permission to do that, because the truth is at comedy clubs, people drink, 
and people get offended and we've all had people yell things at us um, it's just part of what it is and it's div different than music where music you're playing your song it's loud the audience can't really scream back at you to be offended at something unless you know the song unless the song says something that or, or the or the performer decides to talk to the audience most of the time it's it's a different relationship you know they might scream things but it's like play that song as opposed to like you suck but so hmm. with comedy there's a lot of room for people to scream you suck and get upset at you and there's been times throughout history where people have been drunk and tried to come on stage and usually there's security gets to them or the comic you know hits back um yeah it's uh it, it's just it was it was just unbelievable and, and the timing of it the whole world was watching it kind of reminds me now of when um, the fly landed on mike pence's head in the <laughs> presidential debate the whole world was watching so it's, i think it's, more people were watching in this case so or yeah, certainly it's afterwards as well as well but the, but the other thing is i mean there was all kinds of conspiracy theories immediately it, you know even watching it in real time as i did you were at first kind of going is this was that a bit like you know will comes up and and the reason i knew or i felt like like I knew that this wasn't uh, planned or something was Chris Rock was just his his face his reaction afterwards in which he he ended up dealing quite elegantly with it but he kind of stumbles over his words at first and tries to you know regain his his confidence his footing and and I just felt for him in that moment yeah yeah no I agree with you 100% because I played it in my head too I said Geez, I wonder if before the show, the producer was like, listen, nobody watches this thing anymore, so let's do something that'll get us some attention. You say this, you come out, you slap him. But as you said, um, it looked real, and I think it was real. I, I don't think there was any, any. Um, I don't think it was planned at all. It's great to talk to you, brother. Thank you for making the time. Looking forward to World Cup, and before that, looking forward to seeing you at these gigs uh, all over the place. Thanks so much today. Right back at you, brother. Be well. All right, see ya. All right, bye-bye. Maz Jabrani, Iranian-American comedian, actor, football fan. You can see him uh, on tour May 20th in Ottawa, May 21st in Toronto if you're in Canada. You heard he's going to England, Sweden, Germany. Check out all the tour dates wherever you're listening to us from and around the world at mazjabrani.com, mazjabrani.com. Maz joined us from Los Angeles today. Ever the diplomat, hey? Yeah. Ever, ever the diplomatic, the politician. would have been politician. a great politician, like in a great politician. I love the part where he says, uh, it's like, Maz, come on, who are you supporting? Yeah. You know, no matter who wins, I feel good. <laughs> no. I feel good for the other side. Come Even if my on, team boy. doesn't win, I feel good for the. I'm like, man, you're good at this. Yeah, you are good at I this know. diplomacy. I know. Yeah, I can't believe. I thought you were joking when at first you were like, oh no, he was bashing on Canadian teams and stuff like that. And then what? He he really like didn't think didn't have much faith in can can Canada. I, I mean, to be <laughs> fair, Canada's only ever been in the World Cup once. Well, that's actually true. Previous to this, that's and you know, are you listen? I mean, it's been a dramatic year. People forget this. Yeah, I think Canada was ranked number eighty three or was some wow. insane number way down the list, wow. and we're now in the top twenty. I mean, it's a, Amazing. it's yeah, it's been. John Herdman and the team it's been it's been amazing yeah. it's been pretty it's been a surprising couple of years I gotta say since COVID hit nothing seems to be <laughs> the, the way Will it Smith going it's crazy way. I know <laughs> Moss took a position on that, I, that the yeah. one thing he actually took a position <laughs> as he should I mean he That's has to right, support actually, his fellow comedian is, yeah, right yeah yeah and and it's just there is no defense so yeah yeah
Huh. Uh, well, um, let's get let's get to our, our feature guest because sure. he's waiting, and uh, that soccer chat went a lot longer than uh, we thought. <laughs> See you in a little bit, Captain Reza and Groovy Shia. Indeed, we were just talking about the Oscars and 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 uh, Will Smith. The Oscars were only a week ago, and if you're a fan of great cinema in the last couple of decades, it is likely that you have seen some of the work of my feature guest today. He is an acclaimed and prolific Iranian-British screenwriter and director with an extensive body of work. Hossein Amini was born in Tehran to a distinguished family. His grandfather, Ali Amini, was actually the prime minister under the Shah in the 1960s. Hossein moved to England with his family when he was 11 years old, just before the revolution, and grew up from then on in the UK. He thereafter majored in history and modern languages in post-secondary school, but it was the art of storytelling that attracted his attention. Huss began his career as a screenwriter in the early 1990s and seemed to be a natural from the get-go. He's been nominated for numerous awards, including an Oscar for Best Writing for his adapted screenplay of the 1997 film The Wings of the Dove. His many films have included Gangs of New York, Kill Shot, Shanghai, Snow White and the Huntsman, 47 Ronin, The Two Faces of January, Our Kind of Traitor, and The Snowman. He won the Best Adapted Screenplay Award from the uh, Austin Film Critics Association in 2011 for his loose adaptation of the novel of the same name of the film, Drive. And since 2018, Haas has been writing for television and has achieved huge success with two crime series, McMafia and The Alienist. But right now, Hossein Amini joins me from London, England today. Hello, sir. Hi, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's great to have you on the program. And you're, I mean, clearly incredibly prolific. In the last two decades, you've pretty much had a major film or TV screenplay under your belt every year. One gets the sense of a man who is constantly writing. Are you? I am constantly writing because for everything that gets made, there are probably two or three that don't get made as, as every screenwriter goes through. Um, so so you just have to write as much as you can to, to, to give yourself a better chance of having stuff made. I mean, it's heartbreaking when they aren't made, but um, but just got to keep grinding. So, do I mean what? Do you have a daily routine or regimen? Do you are you one of those people who uh, literally makes it like a nine to five job? You have to sit in front of a computer and write. Yeah, I mean, it's it's evolved a bit. So when I was younger, I'd I'd write longer. Um, then at some stage, I I sort of learned. You sort of learn to know yourself as a writer as well, and 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 so. I sort of realized anything I was really doing after two in the afternoon wasn't hugely productive. And and especially if I got a bit snowblind or, or sort of, you know, just, just like, you know, I kept on rewriting the same lines of dialogue and obsessing and, 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 and I didn't realize that was more to do with tiredness than anything that was necessarily wrong with the lines. So I then just really started working. I'm a morning person. So I start quite early in the morning and work through until around up sort of one-ish, two-ish latest. And then I spend the afternoon um, really taking notes and stuff and prepping for the writing the next day um, so so that I have some idea of what I'm going to write. And I think that was something I remember reading in an interview with Hemingway years ago that, that just he, he would always try to end his writing day at the point where he most wanted to continue the next day ah. so he'd go in with it which i thought was a great tip and i have sort of also trying to do that where i the idea of not knowing what i'm going to write has become more and more difficult that idea and I, I used to be able to sit down at my desk and suddenly be able to just free flow and whatever and and now i 
I, I, I sort of feel I need to know whether it's a line of dialogue or a description of a room or something like that. I sort of need to know where I am in the morning when I start. You know, it, it's hard to imagine a screenwriter being anything other than an artist. You are a creator. You're creating. That is an artistic endeavor. Um, but given your level of accomplishment and the fact that you work on all these major films and TV series now, can you afford to be an artist? Uh, I don't mean literally in terms of the bank. I mean, can can you work when you're feeling inspired, or is it more literally like a desk job where you have to you have to be there day in day out, no matter what? Well, well it's I, I definitely get up every day and write, but that that that's that's also because I I need to inhabit the world that I'm writing about. So so if I'm I don't know right now I'm doing something set in, you know. In the 18th century, in sort of um, in, in Tahiti and, and around the Pacific and stuff, so I I sort of need to be in that world. So if if I if I take a day or two off writing, then I need to get back into it and that that sort of so so even if it's just doing it a couple of hours every day just to keep in that world, that's quite important for me. I guess it's inhabiting the world that I'm writing in, and it sounds it probably sounds pretentious. I don't mean it like that. It's um, that's my process. I sort of need to feel to imagine that world in order to write about it so yes it is every day how do you inhabit the 1800s or uh in tahiti <laughs> a lot of research there's a you know i mean reading obviously um you know i've started listening to audiobooks more you know there are a few movies made there you know museum exhibitions at the british museum today i went and had a look at some of the stuff that was on but but it is you know, some subjects are like if you're doing sci-fi, it's obviously a little bit harder and stuff. But um, but it, but it's really about the imagination. I think I think going back to the question of can you be an artist? It's also the problem is we work in an industry and films are so expensive to make that at some stage, and this has happened to me on a lot of the movies that I've worked on, is is you know there are notes that come in or decisions that are made and whatever that that you know you're not necessarily happy about. But it's very hard to turn around when a film is costing 70, 80 million dollars and go, but you're destroying my vision. It's an industry and movies need to make money in order for other movies to get made. So um, some of that preciousness has definitely gone out over the years. Um, I appreciate the, the notion of wanting to inhabit a mindset, uh, a creative space and not, not want to take time away from it. Um, I think of the as a musician the, the the equivalent of you know you're making an album and uh, you two will go off to a castle for two months yeah. so that they can stay in the mindset of of the Joshua Tree or whatever record they're making. What does that mean though when this is your job um, all year round? I mean, uh, if you're really involved in the headspace of Gangs of New York, can you? take the weekend off and make scrambled eggs for the, the family or or, yeah. or are you just you know do you just stay away from people or how does it work no not at all and that, that that's where the couple of hours writing a day even even if it's like you know if, even if i'm in holiday or something and i haven't finished a script or whatever i'll still try to do a day because that just that one hour of writing on that day will at least keep me connected to the world but yeah of course i can go off and do other stuff and you know, if, if I spend two or three days not writing, then it'll take me at least that long to back, get back into that world. If I disconnect, I do connect again. But it, you know, usually if I if I've taken three or four days off, I, I'll generally tend to go work through from the beginning of the script. 
because I that that in a way is a good way for me to explain that process is I need to rediscover that story and get back into it. Um, I want to I want to come back to the the screenwriting and the process, but I first I want to ask you a little bit about how this all happened for you and because it's it's quite amazing to me that I'm talking to a guy who sounds like a distinguished British uh, acclaimed award-winning artist with the the English accent and and the the pedigree but you're also a Persian kid like uh, like like yeah, me absolutely. and most of the people listening uh, you were born right. in Tehran uh, and this is around the time when your grandfather was prime minister under the Pahlavi rule in the 60s. How aware of your distinguished lineage were you as a kid in the 60s and 70s in Iran? Well, I was six, I was born in 66, so 60s I was too young. But by the time I was, I guess, old enough to remember, um, I remember my, I think because my grandfather had also, there had been, I don't know, some complications with the Shah or anything, but there, there, there was a period where I don't think he was under house arrest, but there were certainly people sort of watching the house, his house. And I and I remember like, you know, probably a lot of rich, spoiled Iranian kids thinking, you know, why has my grandfather got so many people working at his house? You know, I didn't understand, I, I didn't understand that they didn't work with him at all, actually. They were just keeping an eye on them. There were guards or something? Them. Right. <laughs> no, I think I think they were they were potentially sort of, you know, because um, I think he was part of a slightly more liberal faction of the same mm. sort of it was still part of you know that monarchist thing but he was uh i think they were just keeping an eye that there weren't too many opposition people visiting the house and stuff he's he's fascinating because if i have this correct i mean you've sort of got all the the bases covered in terms of the 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 monarchy history <laughs> he's working in the pahlavi dynasty but you actually have Qajar lineage as well, right? Yeah, he was related. So his grandfather, I think, had um, his grandfather was Muzaffaruddin Shah, and I think he he was a sort of reluctant appointee of the Shah in the sense that I think there was, you know, there was always a nervousness about people from the old dynasty and stuff. But he was very loyal. I think in in, in his own way, he was actually very loyal uh, to the Shah. But I think he did want to reform various things, mm. and 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 and. To be fair, probably didn't entirely succeed because I think he, only, he was only prime minister for a couple of years, if I remember rightly, and then and 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 was very quickly removed. And so I think none of the big plans really were accomplished. But, but your dad was also a diplomat, so I mean, was it the kind of thing where you know one day at noon, that, like the the Shah is over for lunch or something? Or I mean, how how involved were you guys in the in? No, because I, I actually even even as a kid, I remember the Shah feeling very remote and above every everyone I, I didn't i didn't have that sense that he was like i mean my i remember my cousins were friends with i think one of his sons but even that felt like if you were going to their birthday party there'd be bodyguards and you wouldn't really go and talk to the shah so I, it, it definitely felt quite removed I, I didn't feel i wasn't i didn't feel part of an inner circle or anything um I mentioned your dad was a diplomat your dad's a diplomat your mom a tv producer at the time it sounds like a very dynamic childhood was it yeah it, it, it was very you know they're both um i mean i didn't see a huge amount of my dad i have to be honest i mean he was he was traveling a lot and stuff um uh and then but my mum has always been a massive inspiration and sort of after the revolution so my, my parents separated just a year before the revolution and i came to london with my mother so i wasn't actually in iran when the revolution happened um but she, she'd been, you know, a TV producer in Iran, and then 
when we got to the UK, she started her own cashmere business, and and it's sort of and and being raised in a way by a mother, it was it was quite a non-Iranian experience in the sense that I think a lot of my contemporaries, I remember, they had quite you know macho father figures and stuff, and there was this sort of quite strong classically Iranian you know male figures and stuff, and I I really felt that I was I was very lucky to watch not just my mum but a lot of Iranian women after the revolution actually adapt way better to what had happened than a lot of the men. I remember like the men would always be well next year next Nowruz we're going to be back in Tehran. Mm. You know, there was that constant refrain that you know the exiled Iranian community had and and yet with the women they just got on with it and I think in, in a sense they were suddenly more free to be themselves and to do their own businesses and 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 certainly in my experience i was very proud of what my mother achieved you know both before and after the revolution but i didn't know this piece about your parents separating before the revolution uh, that i'm just thinking about you as a 12 year old kid a 13 year old kid in england um with the revolution happening back home, the revolution in the family, it's a lot of tumult. It's a lot happening yeah. with you yeah. at that time. And I have to say, Eng England at the time was, you know, going to an English boarding school was, it was a pretty, you know, the, my, my secondary school was actually pretty good and liberal and tolerant, but my prep school, um, it was quite racist. And, and to suddenly go from, you know, this sort of fairly idyllic Iranian background back in Tehran to suddenly sort of being a massive outsider and stuff and and you know being called names and things like that um that was a strange experience and and yeah absolutely the the combined turmoil of a revolution plus a divorce or separation going on at the same time but i have to say it's probably the thing that's i don't i'm not a psychiatrist but a psychologist but the idea of if, if i go back to any particular period in my life that that a lot of what i sort of write about especially when i'm not doing commissions when it's sort of the stuff that feels more personal it, it's usually about breakups and the, the changes unexpected changes i mean I, th I think anyone who went through that revolution the idea that your life as a constant just can't exist it's like literally you go from day to day mm -hmm. just going from being one you know, wealthy or this or that, and suddenly being an immigrant, and you know, so I think that idea that life can just suddenly turn really quickly, um, both on a personal and, in this case, a national level, has really stuck with me, and, and it's a theme I find I've always found really fascinating. It would make sense that it makes you uh, richer as a writer. Did you did you embrace being Iranian, or was it difficult for you? I've talked a fair bit on this show about being a a little kid around that time of the revolution and the hostage crisis happening and and wow. really quite i mean shamefully in retrospect but i understand why at the time i was i was sort of in the ethnic closet i would hope that kids wouldn't find out i was iranian because we were the bad guys how was it for you exactly what you just described i remember very clearly just being embarrassed a little bit and then and then like say when other kids at my school would talk to me in farsi i'd sort of try to sort of answer yeah I, I just and, and then i later on i then felt ashamed of being ashamed so that by the time i got to around 18 or 19 i was hey i'm iranian i'm really proud of it and it's sort of that but it d definitely from about tw i'd say 12 to 15 or 16 that there was a real sense of of wanting to keep quiet uh or, or sort of 
you know, feeling somehow was embarrassing. And then, and then being embarrassed about being embarrassed. Like I said, it was like, why shouldn't I be? And my, my kids are half, half, but I think it's good that they're, they're very, you know, fortunately they don't speak, you know, much Farsi, but they, they're very proud of it, that they have this other culture. And I think that's becoming more and more attractive and appealing to people. Um, you, you've also talked about in, in previous uh, interviews I've seen with you, you've talked about your parents being your, your recollections as a kid of your parents being really committed to this notion of a tolerant society and really preaching yeah. that to you. Can, can yeah. you speak to that? I mean, I remember when I was at, I was at an English school in Tehran, but my, closest friend there was was what his father worked as the Israeli embassy or like you know Catholic friends or whatever and there was this sense that somehow that that there was that idea of whether it's anti-semitism or homophobia or racism is just not something I felt you know I, I wasn't surrounded by that um it's it's one of the things I find really important. It's one of the things I do still find a little bit embarrassing. I mean, not a little bit, very embarrassing about, you know, what's going on in Iran to a certain extent now is is you know, a lack of tolerance from women to you know, I, I and and I it's it, I don't mean it to sound liberal and whatever. It really is about tolerance. It's really about I don't understand how if people don't harm you, you can persecute them. Mm. It's just, you know, in a war, I mean, in a, even in a war situation, I can understand as one country defeats another in war and there's retribution or whatever, you may not agree with it, but it comes from someplace. But to suddenly take, whether it's a race or, a, 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 you know, because sexual whatever, orientation or whatever, to suddenly just pick on people for that just doesn't make any sense to me. And it was not part of your reality as a kid in Iran. It's no, interesting. No, I mean, no. it, it's also interesting that, that, to note that, uh, given your dad's a, a, a diplomat, we've talked about the lineage and the the occupation of your your grandfather. I have to. I mean, you're a boy. Was it expected that you were going to become some sort of politician or military general or, or something? I mean, you if the revolution always, hadn't. I, I, I always get teased because. Um, <laughs> I mean, I can't even tell my left and right apart, but I had this fantasy that I, and if I had stayed in Iran, I would have been a general. <laughs> and everyone in my family just thinks you'd have been the worst, <laughs> worst general, you know, the least least competent, whatever. But um, I, I think it was a lot of people who come from a similar background were starting to go into the arts or whatever. And I don't know quite how, I, I felt in the years before the revolution and from what I've you know, conversations I've had again, I would have been too young, but there was suddenly, there were more possibilities and stuff. Um, yeah, it's massively privileged, which meant it probably been easier to get a job at the TV company or this or that or whatever. Um, but, but I, I don't know that I would have been forced into a situation of following the foreign office route or the, you know, certainly not military. As, as well, what about the the traditional doctor or engineer expectations? Did you face that, or you seem to have escaped it? So uh, my my father had been he'd been to drama school, um, so he'd already, I guess, broken that barrier. Because like you're right, a lot of Iranian parents would be engineer, doctor, lawyer, and you know, jobs that job security and this and that. But actually, my parents were incredibly encouraging of what I was trying to do and to be honest like the first four or five years after leaving university I wasn't earning money and and they were very supportive I, I think their patience would have run out probably at some stage 
but but certainly you know i i never felt the pressure to go and just do you know th those jobs that i think most iranian parents of that generation expected their kids to go into i mentioned that you went to school for history uh as did i and 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 modern languages or something uh, but why did you know or or why did you fall in love with film so much that that was the thing that you wanted to spend your life doing well that was again i'd say that was my, my dad was a huge film buff so i remember when just after the revolution so i, I didn't when they when my parents separated i'd spend the holidays i'd spend two weeks with my mum and then two weeks with my dad in paris which is where he moved to and and we would literally just go and watch three movies a day on the champs Elysees. we'd be like you know two o'clock showing four o'clock and six and so I was just watching movies the whole time. And then when I got to, to Oxford, where I studied um, for university, there were a couple of cinemas near where I was living where, again, they'd have a, you know, they, 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 it was a great thing because they'd have like a director, whether it's Fellini or Tarkovsky or, or Bergman or whatever, and they'd just show three of their movies, like a two, four, six, same sort of idea. And I used to just go binge on these great directors and just watch them. and and. And I think the more films you see, uh, I'd say for me, that is, the, if, you know, if anyone, you know, in terms of what's the best education for wanting to go into screenwriting is, is really to watch lots of movies because really all you're doing is transcribing, you know, when you're writing down what you're seeing in your head as a sort of movie that's that's unreeling. Um, and, and so, you know, I learned an awful lot from just watching watching tons and tons of movies. But you're watching the the movies. I mean, but you don't want to be the actor. You don't want to be the director. You don't want to be the producer. You want to be the writer. Why? why? I did. You know what? I have to confess. I did. I did want to. I wrote initially to direct, and and one of the things, and I the first two things I did wrote and directed two short films, but as soon as I started working as a writer, I I, I left the directing too late. I sort of. I mean, I I, I loved the film I directed, and I really enjoyed doing it, but. Um, you, you can get very typecast or put into a, you know, if you're a writer, they prefer you to be a writer. Yeah, they'll let you direct a movie because you've written it and the actors, but it's, 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 unless you have a massive hit um, as a 40 something year old, I was almost 50 when I directed my first film, and unless you have something which makes tons and tons of money or wins and tons and, you know, then they, they prefer you to do what you do, which is to be a screenwriter. And I think, you know, if I was to go back and, you know, think about if I really had been a right, wanted to be a writer director, I would have made, I think, different choices in terms of turning down higher paid work in order to write and direct something smaller and build that career. That's um, the Persian part of you. You chase the money. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I mean, it's true. I mean, I, I did a, you know, I signed a deal. Um, uh, with Miramax and Harvey Weinstein, like when I was, you know, straight off Wings of the Dove, and and really didn't didn't get anything made for seven years because I was doing rewrites on, you right. know, projects and stuff. And so, I want yeah, to get to let me get to the rewrites, but but just on this note of your entree into screenwriting, um, tell me what you remember. But the, I guess the first major screenwriting credit is The Dying of the Light, right? Yeah. So yeah. tell me about that experience. Well, that was it. That was it. British TV movie um, uh, with a director called Peter Kosminski, who who was who was very well known for docudramas, and that's what his style was. And there'd be a lot of research, 
but I, I was already even then thinking in terms of movies. And I remember, for example, we had one big disagreement where it was about an aid, wor aid, uh, aid worker who was killed in Africa. And his whole story was how close he was to children and how wonderful he was with children. And so my sort of film imagination was saying, well, the irony of him being killed by a child soldier or, or by a child assassin would give it a sort of filmic closure and, and, and you know, the irony and the poignancy and whatever, but Peter Kuzminski, who was very much on the dark character, was, well, the guy who actually did it was 25 or 26, so we can't, you know, so so I was bang, I was sort of slightly already, I, I guess, resisting or, or you know, the, the, the documentary side of it was less interesting to me than the fiction. And, and even taking a factual subject is to sort of almost mythologize it or turn it into something more universal and bigger than that specific story but if i if i have the story correctly i mean uh, the story of your life that is it does quite well it really puts you on the map this the dying of the light and the reason i wanted to ask about it is because it occurs to me i mean you've just talked about the subject matter of that film it's quite dark it's it's serious and i wonder and it becomes an award-winning film as well when you kick off with a film like that, you're the, the young screenwriter who's um, who is getting acclaim for working on something like The Dying of the Light. Uh, does it kind of not to typecast you, but does it does it create expectations around the kind of work you're going to do, and therefore you're, for example, not going to be the go-to guy for rom-coms to make some sort of superficial comedy? Yeah, I mean that that happens that sort of happened but but for a while because after that one i did jude and wings of the dove which were both costume drama classic adaptations of classic novels and, and whatever and so the, i think the the only thing i remember doing is very consciously going against that sometimes because i love i love kind of genre in movies and i love you know i, I whether it's a sci-fi thing or a musical or or yeah and any I, I think you could still bring some of the things that interest you as a writer or personal stuff into any genre. And I love that combination too. So the idea, it does typecast you, but but I have to say rom-coms are probably the one genre that I generally avoid anyway, because I love watching them, but I have to be honest, I don't, and maybe that comes from combination of the revolution and the divorce or whatever, but the idea of, of happy, uncomplicated, whatever, sometimes I, I'm just not very good at it. How dare you? Yeah, Hugh exactly. Hugh Grant would uh, would not have a career with no. I wrong, mean, but. like I said, I love watching them, and I think I think in their own way that they're it's absolute genius and great art, and some of the you know some like it hot absolutely is up there with the greatest. You know, there's so many of those rom coms are, but it's just I know myself as a writer, I kind of like you know someone sends me something, and I go, well, it's not, it's just not something I'd be very good at writing. You talk about um, rewriting, and and you you begin doing rewriting on, on 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 scripts, including the script for Gangs of New York, um, which I think I just think is a spectacular film, and you're working with a, a master on that one, uh, Scorsese, Martin Scorsese. Did you? Uh, I mean, despite your lineage, and you said you grew up with privileges. I mean, you're, you're still this this kid who's come from sort of outside of Hollywood, um, who's working on this stuff. Did you get intimidated by these types like Scorsese early on in your career? I just, I, I was so, I mean, he was such a great, I mean, it felt like a real privilege. I mean, that was the thing is it was suddenly you're working for it. But, but also one of the, the, the things, I, I did two drafts on that. I did one sort of 
maybe a year and a bit before they started shooting and then one sort of nearer production but he was I remember the first time I met him he was fantastic because he would get you'd show him a scene and he's Martin Scorsese and I'd written something and he'd he'd be so positive about the scene and then he'd say why don't we change this and why don't we change that and why don't we work on this and literally the scene would be completely changed by the end of it because <laughs> because Martin Scorsese has told you he liked your scene initially you'd do anything for him and I think that was an amazing ability he had that you know I think more people could learn from the idea of actually if, if you go in positive on something you buy such kind of willingness from people to then change it that, that even if he hated it and said he like it just made a real difference and he was amazing at managing people so he's just not an intimidating person he's an intimidating person because of what he's achieved but actually he was very very easy and generous and and, and actually so curious that sometimes you forget that you would sort of in, be in a room and forget he was Martin Scorsese and you were nobody. You just felt very equal in that room and in that conversation. And that's that's certainly not what everyone does. I've worked with a lot of directors. Why do you think he is such a master? Um, I, th I think with him, I mean, I don't know, and this is really as a fan, that's not someone who necessarily worked with him. I think it's just that that ability to draw, I think it's all, they're all great filmmakers and artists. It's, it's that connection between the, the the self and the material they're doing is that ability to almost be confessional or to draw on your own pain sadness joy happiness all those things and be able to somehow put that into your work just makes it feel more distinctive and personal it's like his whole you know the idea of catholicism and blood and whatever and the way that finds its way into his mm. gangster films so it, it's it's just he feels his life feels connected to his work and i think you know, I think if you don't have that, then you're imitating, and I think he's properly creating. Haas, what is the um, what is the allure of screenwriting for you? I mean, you talked earlier about that you that you knew when you did the documentary that uh, script you you were more interested in going into fiction, but fiction could be I mean why not be a novelist or a short story writer what is it about wanting to create storylines for visual images that's well, so seducing I'd say I mean I think of screenwriters as filmmakers rather than writers necessarily I mean I've never wanted to write a novel I mean I wrote a couple of plays when I was quite young at university but then very quickly moved on to film because it's it's the film storytelling it's visual storytelling I love uh, you know it's it's not dialogue i enjoy writing but it's not for me if i can write a silent scene um whether it's drama or action or whatever that's the real satisfaction is is, is and a lot of the movies i love don't have a huge amount of dialogue in them um you know and i, I kind of there's a simplicity and a minimalism which i've always liked in in movies and and, and quite often if i write a script most of it long long chunks of description without a single line of dialogue i was going to say not just the not just the movies you love the movies you've made i mean drive the the 2011 film with ryan gosling which i think is brilliant there's i was thinking about you that you're the screenwriter that there isn't actually very much i mean his character barely talks and i wonder what the challenge of i know it's a traditional question but the challenge of screenwriting is when there are just stretches of of silence or very little dialogue I mean, what I often do, if there's a dialogue, you know, like a scene with someone here, like him who doesn't say very much, it's, it, it's how you fill the silences and the emotions and trying to describe. And it's something a lot of people tell you not to do in screenwriting, but I can't help it because I've always been, I mean, Harold Pinter was another huge influence on, on, on me when I was kind of 
at school and university and stuff. And so the idea of pauses and the idea of actually what's not said being more truthful and more revealing than what is said, you know, and that's one of the things that some movies I've, I've really struggled writing is when there's no subtext and when people really say what they think and, and come at it directly rather than from the sides, I find that sort of dialogue really hard to write. And again, I enjoy listening to it and I enjoy watching films where there is that massive outpouring of, you don't realize I was a kid from a whatever, broken this and that and whatever. And, and I, 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 you know, in my, in my the reality that I've come across, people don't, aren't quite that overtly confessional. Mm. Um, uh, and people don't say what they think, and 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 it's the, the you know the way language and dialogue is coded. I find more interesting than 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 when it's absolutely people say exactly what they think. But it's an amazing art. I mean, I'm just thinking about this, and again, you'll forgive me for the the basic, the elementary <laughs> look at screenwriting. I'm sure that these are ba very basic uh, uh, observations I'm making because I, I'm not directly in that field, but but. In a novel, if you're a novelist, uh, if you're a fiction writer, you, you there's no there. You can't write silence. Uh, you know that doesn't make sense. The reader has to read what's going on. Um, so you're you're kind of navigating different art forms as a screenwriter. You're you're writing, but you're also thinking about the what's happening visually, right? Yeah, and and that would include. It's almost like say, for example, between two lines of dialogue. To, to, I mean, even if something simply as he looks away, considers, then looks back. Now, if you're writing that, you're basically saying, give it a little bit of air and don't go straight into the next line of dialogue. And, and you know, I remember, for example, on something like Our Kind of Traitor, which was the John Le Carre adaptation, one of my disappointments with the way the film turned out was the speed with which it kind of moved in terms of the, you know, and, and, I've I always felt that Le Carre, it was about, again, exactly that thing of people not, it's the mysteries in what people aren't saying. And so I'd intended it to have a lot of those pauses and whatever, and but it came, it was rattled along. And, and, and you know, for me, it was just too fast. So, and, and I quite like mundane dialogue. I kind of, I like people talking about everyday things, but with something supercharged underneath. And And the problem is, if that's said at a clip and you're not really picking it up, it can just sound silly. I'm glad you mentioned Lacari because uh, it segues into what the, the, a question I wanted to ask, which is that there must be quite a delicate dance of taking a work that exists, a, a famous novel in some cases, and adapting it for screen. I'm, a, I'm an Elmore Leonard fan, so when you're taking an Elmore Leonard novel like Killshot and turning it into a screenplay as you did in, in 2008, Tell me about navigating uh, the respect for the author and at the same time what you might need for the sake of the cast or the movie magic. Um, well, how well, Killshot's you... a really interesting one because actually Killshot was rewritten extensively not by me after it was shot. The version that, that I wrote um, was very, very faithful to Elmore Leonard because like you, I'd been a massive, massive Elmore Leonard fan. I, I loved that and I really kept a lot of it, but we tested that movie and it tested abysmally. Um, and these these were in the days when I was working with at Miramax and, and Harvey Weinstein was very keen on test screenings. And so once that film tested, and I, I have to say, I loved the first cut of it, but audience hated it. And then it just turned into a different movie. So that that's an example of, 
almost having too much, maybe I had too much reverence for Elmore Leonard and therefore I didn't think how that, that in a commercial mainstream movie, some of his quirkiness, originality wouldn't necessarily connect. But then I've seen other films, adaptations of his where it's worked wonderfully. So, so then somebody else comes in and, and rewrites what you've rewritten? Yeah, in that case, yeah. How, it does, hasn't happened. how does that yeah. feel when that happens? I mean, it sort of felt, didn't really feel as much like mine anymore. And, and there's a lot of movies I've worked on. Where, and, and look, I've been in a situation where I've been doing rewrites on other people's scripts. So it's very hard to, to do, to, to feel, um, you know, it's, it's not their fault that the film, I mean, frankly, in that case, it was nobody's fault that the film didn't test well. An audience, a test audience came along who weren't necessarily familiar with Elmore Leonard's tone and just said, this is, this is weird. Host, does the author have any dominion in a case like that? I guess Elmore would have been alive then when you... Well, he was incredibly gracious. I didn't have a... He was, you know, very generous about essentially a butchered version of... Well, you know, so I think he was incredibly gracious. Um, Le Carre I work with quite closely. Um, so you're in uh, contact with them? Not not always, but I mean, like on The Alienist, I wore, you know, I had a very nice dinner with Caleb Carr, I mean, yeah, you, you absolutely meet them and stuff if, if they're living authors. And like James Salas on Drive, who I just think was an absolute genius and I just love what he'd written. He, I think, chose to stay away from the process. Um, how often do you decide what you're going to write about and how often is it a studio or a director telling you what you want? In other words, how, how much of what you do is commissioned? I mean, pretty much all of it. I mean, I haven't, I haven't, you know, partly because came back to the Iranian thing of money that, you know, providing for kids and whatever, I've always, it's always been a profession for me. So I've never, uh, apart from the early days, I've never been able to take three or four months off to write something for myself. Um, and and so it's usually, and, and the truth is when movies cost as much as they cost to make, the chances of me saying, again, I'd love to write something about my experiences in the revolution and how I came to England and whatever, Realistically, I know the chances of that. I mean, maybe there's more of a chance of that now, but certainly a while ago, I, I knew that was a, if it was a certain budget, you knew unless you got Tom Cruise or Brad Pitt or whatever, those movies wouldn't get financed. And, you know, who's going to play the Iranian, whatever, you know. So, so they, they definitely, um, I think that's changing for the better because I think everyone's suddenly interested in making movies about. By, by the way, by the way, Jake Gyllenhaal will play the Iranian. Well, there you go. No, exactly. There's, there's, no, he's amazing. He's extraordinary, actually. Yeah, that would have been great. But, um, but yeah. So I, I, I'm sort of. If a studio pays you to do something, there's a little bit more of a chance, and often they'll pay and not do it. But, but just getting it made because the most frustrating for a thing for a screenwriter is to write something that doesn't get made because it's not like writing a book or, uh, you know, like a novel or whatever. Because it, it, un until it gets made, it's really just a blueprint for something else. And yeah, screenplays get published and whatever, but really, it, it's it's only a step in a process that leads to the finished film. You, you did this little video. Um, it was for BAFTA. You're talking to another filmmaker or screenwriter, and in it, you describe the career of a screenwriter as up and down, and a matter of surviving the failures. Um, which basically could be a description of life, frankly. Yeah, but but yeah. tell me what you're thinking about when you say that about screenwriting. 
Well, it, it, that, that's sort of almost looking back on a career where, I mean, you're not, as a screenwriter, you're not really in total control and you're not in any control, really, of, of the final product. There's so many, you know, you're the first step in something which then, you know, you have casting. Um, then, you know, do you get the right actors? Get the wrong actors, the film's already in trouble. Is it the right director? Is it the best director? A good director usually makes you look good and a bad director can make you look very mediocre. Then there's the things like the test screenings um, where, you know, an audience who don't necessarily know that material, like the material, judge it and everyone panics and they chop the film in the studio quite often will hack a film to pieces if they're suddenly worried about, you know, so, so it's so fragile. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a miracle that if the films turn out, good films actually happen because so many things can go wrong. I mean, I remember I worked on a rewrite for a film called Four Feathers, which had probably one of the best sequences I'd written, which was this journey along the Nile. And then where they were filming in Morocco, there was, there was a drought, so that all the river scenes got lost. And so it, it just so changes everything. And then you're panicking and rewriting and trying to reinvent. And, and so, you know, a sandstorm can come along and destroy five days of shooting and then the film doesn't make sense. Um, and, and, and so that, that's, that's what I meant is it's, it's just to be able to get hired again. Initially when I, you know, you'd have a bad movie or movie didn't work or whatever, I'd think, oh, it would be almost like a creative stab through the heart. Now it's like, as long as I can keep doing this, you know, that, that's something because. So how much do you care when, I mean, do you, when a film comes out, are you checking the box office? Are you sort of, uh, yeah. Yeah. And reviews and, and, uh, you know, the good reviews read with a sense of relief and read the first two lines and I stop reading bad reviews. I read 10 times. I mean, I, th I think, every, you know, I know some people are really good at not doing that, but, but there, there's a, I don't know, it's a masochistic side or whatever, but I, I definitely beat myself up over, um, you know, you believe the bad ones and you think the good ones. Absolutely, so that's the reason not yeah. to read them. I do. You probably read the comment yeah. sections too, don't you? Yeah, I mean, no, 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 that actually, that that's that's too painful because that's also, <laughs> you know, at least with critics, you know, some of the, you know, you, you feel, although even that's changing, but that, that, that there's a degree of, what the word is, there's a, there's a, not politeness, but, but, it's not personal, but some of those those other you know when you're reading things again, this guy should never have been a writer or something like that, or you know uh, it's it's it, that 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 can just knock your confidence. I think it's just not worth reading. It's you know it's a weird culture um, where you're bringing a bunch of different people together to create something. Uh, it's it's not like the normal office place where people are working with the same folks year after year. I mean, you were working on this new Obi Wan series with you and McGregor. And you yeah. left back last year. There seemed to be some controversy. I don't need to know about it. But, it, but it, is it hard navigating personalities and predilections of certain directors and actors in this business? Yeah, yeah, it's really hard. I mean, it's really hard, and it's also um, there are certain expectations for every kind of story. And, and and I think quite often what can happen is when you're hired, they think they want something, but then the the, the notion of buyer's remorse is is quite frequent in our industry i think it's you know people want to be ambitious or this but actually then they get nervous about it and 
you know, some of the interesting ideas you had just become too scary or whatever. And it's, um, and I get, I get it. It's sort of, but, but yeah, now, you know, dealing with personalities is, and you, you know, I get better at it, but it, it's always very disappointing when, when, you know, something, when you've done what you believe is really good work and, and that's not necessarily kind of, um, you know, doesn't meet the requirement. You're working in TV a lot these days or more so. Yeah. There's this feeling that TV, uh, especially not network TV, the, the, the cable, the HBOs of the world, is, uh, if not Netflix, is the new promised land, that you can get to do things there. It's a playground that, um, that stayed old film has long uh, uh, left behind. Is that your experience? Are you, is, it, is it more liberating somehow to be working on these TV series? Well, you know, I think I think it's especially someone. I, I've adapted a lot of books and stuff, so some books are better suited to TV. I think they they just, you know, a, a lot of great books were ruined by I think trying to cram them into one and a half hours or whatever, whereas they should have been, um, you know, longer. So, so it's liberating in the sense that you can read something and go, well, my God, this would make an amazing TV series. But there are some things you think this should be a movie, and 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 I guess I've always I've always loved sort of movies so much that um, I'm still probably slightly more drawn to that. But I do find suddenly that these great books, which, you know, need the passage of time and need that sense of characters going. Now, if you're going to take a character, you know, through a lifetime, the idea that you've got three series, four series, five series to do that is incredibly liberating. So I, I do, I think it's really, I mean, things like, you know, The Alienist, for example, I think would never have worked as a movie. And I think it was, you know, I think it was maybe two episodes too long, even for the TV show. But it was like, you know, you know, certain books, the length, you know, can, can just be too much for film and you're losing too much by trying to fillet it down to nothing. How important is dialogue in other people's work for you? How critical are you when you watch something? I, um, I'm I'm obsessed with the series Succession right now because I just think the the dialogue is so brilliant. But uh, I, I mean, do you watch series like that and go, "That's great," or I can't stand the dialogue? I can't even watch it because as a screenwriter, it's too difficult for me. No, I know. I, I I really and I really there are certain types of like, for example. Sorkin's dialogue or Tarantino's, I can't write like that. I wouldn't, I don't want to, it's not the dialogue I'm interested in writing, but, you know, if it, so for example, if like a, one of those amazing Tarantino sp speeches, if that was me, I'd probably be going, oh, nobody talks like that. Nobody can formulate right. such a beautifully constructed right. sort of zinging kind of whatever. And so I'd, I'd probably cut out all the best lines and kind of reduce it. To Although something. that is the knock on yeah. Sorkin and yeah. uh, Tarantino. Nobody does talk like that, but yeah. Yeah, but it doesn't, I mean, I guess that 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 storytelling on a heightened level and I kind of try to keep it more low key, but you know, you can appreciate what somebody else does without necessarily wanting to, to do the same thing. It's a, it's really a great pleasure to uh, talk to you. Your your uh, before I let you go, your your resume is so rich, but um, there isn't any work there. I mean, back to our identity conversation, uh, that there isn't any work that I can see that you've done in Persian or with Iranian cinema or with a subject line uh, uh, and a focus on on being Persian or Iranian. Is that something you would do? 
you know, I think it's 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 quite interesting because recently, I mean, there there was a while where I would never get sent anything to do with Iran or the Middle East because I think people thought it would be somehow racist or offensive, and I think suddenly. Now that authenticity what, is what, what you mean, sending the Iranian guy is it's well, no, the guy, well, it was, yeah. If it was like sending the Iranian guy, the Iranian <laughs> script, or sending you know any terrorist stuff. If, if I think you know there was a there's a period when there was all the terrorists, whatever. Right, and it was like, right. okay. Well, that would be kind of racist, but yeah. People, but people yeah. people were quite careful about not saying it. Whereas now, I think because authenticity and and this whole idea that if you do anything set in the Middle East then having a Middle Eastern writer is really important. Yeah. So suddenly I get sent to all this stuff and I'm getting, well, I don't know anything about freedom fighters in Syria. I mean, I'm not, you know, I feel like I, I'm right. Iranian. I'm not, I'm not from, you know, whatever. And right. all of that. But right. I think also my experience is really, it was really hard when I was, I guess, starting and, you know, Iranian subject matter just wasn't getting made. And I think now, um, I mean, outside of Iran, Right. But, but there, subsequently, there have been some fantastic, you know, films made by Iranian American, Iranian British directors, and stuff like that, where they've done both. They've they've sort of created an Iranian stories set. That I actually feel incredibly really proud of the fact that actually they've, they've done so many great, you know, mm -hmm. so many interesting directors, particularly, um, are coming through now. Do they reach out to you, Iranian directors? Um. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I know a, a few I've spoken to, absolutely. Not not Iranian direct. I mean, um, Batman Gobadi, I remember speaking to a while mm -hmm. back. Um, yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, I've spoken to him and I sort of, I, it's just really exciting because you do have something in common. Um, um, you know, there's a German Iranian director I spoke to recently, really interesting. Again, I just, I just think there's a lot of, and pity that younger generation, the generation that, that are, you know, younger younger than I am, but but I think there's some really exciting filmmakers coming through. What about something like Argo? I, I I have my own issues with that film, but do you? But did you when that came out? Did you sort of look at it and go, shit? I I I should have written that, or I would have wanted to write something like that. No, I didn't. I I, I look. I'm, I I thought it was a really entertaining film, but I, I I would never have been able to write the Iranians like they were written. I mean, I just I just you know look I, i'm sure some of those guys in the airport are like that but but i just i just i mean however brilliantly it did and whatever it's just that that's something i think i would have if i'd have been sent it or whatever i would have I would have probably gone look it's, it's going to make a great film and i'm going to be an idiot for turning this down but i just can't do you know i can't do there, there are certain things and and it's, it's not in any way condoning what's happening in, in you know in our country right now but at the same time I've always believed that there's a complexity, humanity in Iranians that I've known. So the idea of drawing them as is almost like the equivalence of Nazi prison guards. I can't, I can't. It's tricky. Is your mom still around? Yeah, my mom's around. Both my parents are 86. So they're, they're uh, yeah. And what does your, I mean, before I let you go, what does your mom, the TV producer, make of her superstar screenwriter son now? I think she's moved on from the t the TV. She did kids programs back in Iran, so I think it wasn't. I don't, you know, she she she's probably more defined as the you know designing or, or, or running a cashmere shop after the revolution. So the she, former no, TV she's, producer, she's, very, she's very proud, but she's really critical as well. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, as as in not not in a. I just think in a poking sort of. Um, 
can't take you seriously. You know, that that sort of, I mean, she'll say that act is way better in somebody else's film than in your film. And it's, it's really? There's nothing worse than being criticized by a parent because somehow it just gets under your skin so deeply. It's actually almost worse than any other, you know, normal critic. And she does it with a sly sense of humor, so it's even more annoying. And what about your dad who would take you to those three films a day on the Champs-Élysées? What does he make of you you being so prolific in film? <laughs> well, he, he's very lovely about it, but also... For him, what's really this is, I think this is quite Iranian, but it's really about if there's a famous actor in it, he's happier because <laughs> then he has something to show off to his friends about. Right, right. So I think I think there's an element of you kind of go, yeah, I'm doing this thing about this subject matter, and you wouldn't have heard of any of the actors. I can see his disappointment <laughs> right. already setting in. Yeah, that, that is. I feel for some reason I do feel that that's here. I can hear my dad going, he has made a film with Robert De Niro in it. You know, yeah, exactly, like, yeah. exactly. That's that's the. <laughs> they need they need those points of reference. That that's right. Yeah. That's right. Otherwise, you're just what yeah, is he yeah, doing? He's house in house film. He's not an engineer. Yeah. What happened? Yeah. Um, it is a it's a great pleasure, as I say, to talk to you. Thank you for doing this. Uh, continued success to you, and I hope we get to see you in person at some point. No, thank you so much. Thank you. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care. Hossein Amini, an acclaimed and prolific Iranian-British screenwriter and director, we reached Hoss Amini in London, England today. Microphone's back on for Groovy Shia and Captain Reza. Man, I I, I was think, thinking of, I was looking at you across the, <laughs> yeah. the glass doing that interview, yeah. Reza, because that that those insights into his so writing, uh, so good. A true professional, like a, a yes. real professional. Yes, Great. and the notion that um, when we were talking about those pauses in in Drive, the yeah. idea that um, it's it's actually more sophisticated, more difficult mm-hmm. to more be difficult. a screenwriter writing less dialogue yeah. than writing more dialogue because yeah. you have to fill in those pauses for I, everybody, the actors and everything to know what's going on. Exactly. Right? And not only filling the pauses, the thing is that if if there is not actual, like some nothing is happening on screen, if there is no story being told, those like it's it can be feel like a filler. Those pauses tell a big story about the character's background, his motivation, his thought process, and just the way he is, his personality, I think. Like, they're dialogues mm. with music. They're speaking to you. Mm. And you can interpret it the way you want. To me, it's more of an abstract art, silence in movies. If you, if there is an actual foundation behind it, if you know what you're doing, if you've done sketches, if you've done portraits, if you're a great artist and you do an abstract work, it resonates because there is something behind it to hold it tight, mm. right? It's got foundation, it's got legs on the ground. But abstract artists who don't have the foundation, filmmakers who don't have the foundation, write, script writers who just, they try to they try to fill in the screen with mm. like pauses and be artistic. It may, there may be a one-off, like a fluke thing that works mm. and so in art, in all sorts of forms of art, it might work. But at the end of the day, it's not a consistent right. thing. I can tell you were up. very energized by that interview. Yeah, I'm very babbling excited about on. it, yeah, actually. Yeah. No, because Can't shut up. <laughs> just, I don't even know what he was saying. He's, he's going oh. on and on about... It's, it's very niche. Yeah. It's for my very niche audience <laughs> and fan, like all five of them. Uh, Shai, what did you think of the idea that... Uh, 
he he's so committed to having to write every day oh, to yeah. be able to stay in that world yes. of you know so he said something like even when he goes on holiday or something he he for a couple of hours writes it reminds me of a musician who exactly. always like picks up the guitar every day no Ex no no matter what or yes, something yeah. exactly exactly i mean you have to i if i uh, what's the saying you have to keep the chops what sure, yeah, yeah, yeah you have to keep the, keep chops. the chops up yeah yeah, yeah yeah so that's the only way that you have to do it every day mm. and also you know that my father uh, he's a movie producer and he's a, yeah. he's an actor and when I was a kid uh, I always because when he came home he always brought some uh, script and mm. my fun was that mm. like yeah every night I, I, I read those script and then I imagined how it uh, oh. became a movie mm. and so it was a very fun game for me too read the script and then like two months three months a year after that i watched the movie and mm. to like come yeah. the script yeah. do you do what do you think reza between i'm scared to ask reza a question because <laughs> <laughs> how much tape Keep do we short. have how, yeah. like, no, 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 i know i'm joking uh, how much two inch do we have to record this next answer uh but uh, how do you what is the difference for you, Reza, between... Because a lot of, at least what Hussein Amini is known for is yeah. adapted screenplays. Yeah. That means there's a, there was a book yeah. or there was a story, and he's taken it and adapted it as opposed to right. writing it from scratch. That's right. Even Gangs you, of New York was originally that's a book. That's right. Yeah. Do, do, which, w, 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 do you think that that's easier somehow? Or? I, I've personally never done that. Granted, I've only written like six feature film i've written a bunch of tv and stuff but i've i've never done that adaptation so i have no experience but mm. i'm assuming it would be in a sense you have more resources to draw from and the characters that have already been written that's always easier working on existing material so yeah i guess so mm. i've never done it though but it's hard to be loyal to the original. That's yeah, I would actually think it'd be harder. I think it'd be harder. Actually, that's true. My answer to my own question would be that it's harder in the sense that that's true too. If you're writing from scratch, you're you know you don't you're not answering answerable to anything, right? Yeah, unless you do what Tarantino does, which is he doesn't mind like bending the rules of actual like original scripture, you know, is scripture. Well, the original piece of literature, like whatever it is, the book, it's a story, whatever it is, he's like, he doesn't religious mind. Books. Religious Scripture. books. <laughs> he's never done actually religious movies. Maybe his 10th last one would be. But yeah. Uh, in the coming days on Rook, coming weeks, I guess, uh, Captain Behnam. Captain Behnam. <laughs> You know who he I is? don't like that we have another captain and he's an actual captain. And, that uh, really bugs me. He's a captain that saved who saved hundreds of lives. <laughs> yeah. And it really trivializes yeah. your captain designation. <laughs> I know, I know. Captain Behnam, uh, Ali Reza Qurbani, yes. uh, uh, the um, singer songwriter Ziba Shirazi, Surush Dabok, the philosopher, psychologist, Ashkan Ruayayi, who is this. Uh, Fabulous uh, dance photographer based out of uh, Texas. And we're going to have an episode of Rook on the metaverse, the metaverse and Iranians. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so cryptocurrency yep. and NFTs, and we got a couple of people who are experts in that space, a couple of Iranians based in Europe, uh, and we'll try and um, explain all of that and yeah. explain why you, Reza, yeah. should take all the money that you have and put it, and in put it into this cryptocurrency, cryptocurrency. I'm going to oh. sell you on this What is app. it called? Rock coin? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I stay away from it. I'm terrified of you this know, thing. You know what scares me about the metaverse? The fact that the moment they start selling, I think they're already selling real estate. The moment we have like real estate agents, Persian real estate agents selling real, <laughs> well, real estate. Of course, in the course they're selling real estate. Of <laughs> oh, course, of course. No, they yeah, are. you buy, you buy, yeah, real estate, and then you know, like, oh, I have a have condo to, for you. <laughs> <laughs> like if we were gonna do rook in the metaverse, oh, we have to cool. do it somewhere. That's true. So whether we have to rent, rent a space or buy a, you know, wow, yeah. got to rent. I don't them. know, man. Jesus Christ, what's yeah. going on? <laughs> Let's make a little uh, NFT of. Yeah, we should. You know. Captain Reza NFT. Captain Reza NFT. <laughs> <laughs> Five bucks a pop. We'll go for at least 60 cents. Oh, come on. Yeah. <laughs> this is full time for Rook for today. Thank you, boys. See you next week. And this Thursday, the continuing Contemporary History of Iran series. With a look at the rise and fall of Mossadegh. With Professor Ervan Abrahmian. Very much looking forward to that conversation. Um, for all things Rook, go to our website, rookmedia.com, rookmedia.com, where you can also become a patron of our program. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Savvy Roham, talented Anahita Ponta, the artist, the fabulous Keon, Super Patty Saul, Raimer Dodd, Captain Reza, and Groovy Shia. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you've not done so already. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. And as ever, Mizun Washington.